Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. An interesting story about Johnson & Johnson and baby powder. According to a report from Reuters, which reviewed internal documents from Johnson & Johnson, when an arm of the WHO began classifying cosmetic talc, such as baby powder, as possibly carcinogenic, and talc suppliers started supplying that info on its shipments to Johnson & Johnson, they were still looking for ways to sell it, and they looked at two key groups of longtime users, minority and overweight women. We spoke to Chris Kirkham, reporter for Reuters, for more on their investigation. My colleague Lisa Girian had done an investigation published back in December that looked at various tests that had been done on Johnson & Johnson's talc through the years. And talc is the essentially the mineral that sort of historically was used in baby powder. They've since introduced cornstarch version of it as well. But talc was the main mineral used in baby powder. And she had looked at basically how some tests through the years had shown that asbestos actually had, had shown up into some of the talc samples and in a few test samples of the product. And so essentially this was kind of a follow-up to what Lisa had done. We were looking at some of their marketing techniques in this time frame of the mid-2000s where there were some marketing documents that they had that indicated essentially that the baby powder line was starting to stagnate, sales were slowing, and they were essentially looking for areas to focus marketing efforts in the following years. And African-Americans and overweight people were two main areas they wanted to focus on. And this came at the same time as the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the WHO, a scientific panel there had determined to classify this specific type of talc use, which was its perineal use of talc, which is essentially using talc as a uh, female genital antiperspirant and deodorant. So the idea was that you know women for many years had, had been using baby powder and talcum powder in their genital area to keep fresh to keep clean. This was this is something that came up a lot in our reporting and even women we spoke with had, had sort of mentioned this. And since then, it's been a major claim in a series of uh, thousands of lawsuits that have been filed by many women against Johnson & Johnson, uh, claiming that this type of use of talc powder led to ovarian cancer. And so through 2006, there have been sort of a series of, of studies. There's a lot of conflicting science. The science is not perfect on this by any means, but there nonetheless have been a, several studies through the years, through the decades, really, that had sort of pointed to this possible connection between this female general use of talc powder and ovarian cancer. And so this International Agency for Research in Cancer in 2006 classified this use of talcum powder as possibly carcinogenic, which which basically suggests that there's, quote, limited evidence in research studies that there is a possible connection. And what happened there was kind of interesting, too. The talc supplier to Johnson and Johnson started putting this information in their shipments to Johnson and Johnson and said, Hey, well, you know, this is kind of a possibility. And what happened after that was that Johnson and Johnson didn't really do anything about it. They didn't disclose any of this information to regulators or the public. And that's kind of part of the problem right there. There was a lot of things happening with 
Johnson and Johnson and the, and the baby powder. Pediatricians had said, you don't really need to use it on babies because they can inhale it and die from that. So they had to change their tactics. The, the number one user of baby powder now were not babies. It was adult. So they had to change their marketing tactics. And these are the people that they started targeting after that. Our reporting had shown that, you know, this was this had been an issue, you know, going back several decades that beginning in the 1950s, there were starting to become some concerns from pediatricians about using talcum powder. There were a few cases reported in medical journals that showed that there were a few fatal cases of infants dying after they had picked up a bottle of baby powder or talcum powder and inhaled a large amount of it. And so, so really people were starting to say, there's sort of other ways you can deal with sort of diaper rash for children and that there are probably safer ways. And, you know, and that really they were saying talcum powder didn't provide any particular medicinal values. It, it was a great brand, baby powder. It was connected to babies from the start. It was one of Johnson & Johnson's oldest products. But we to see kind of in the 70s, a, a shift that the company made in some of their advertising where they were starting to market more to adults, market to teenage women to sort of try to establish more of a connection to baby powder being an adult product. And so this had continued for a few decades. And then the time period we focused in on was this time period where the International Agency for Research on Cancer had this more formal classification, which prompted Johnson & Johnson's supplier to include that information from the International Agency for Research on Cancer on all of its shipments. And it's something basically called the Material Safety Data Sheet. On the label or just sort of a document that accompanies shipments. And so Johnson Johnson's top suppliers starts starts doing this. And then around the same time that this determination had been made by this international cancer research agency, the company starts a plan to start going after African Americans and overweight people. That this was this sort of time. And you know, in those presentations, they cited stagnating sales and issues with sales of, of baby powder. One of the quotes was even Consumers do not see a need for powder anymore, so they were looking for ways to go about it. Tell us a little bit about some of the lawsuits that have sprung up from these claims that caused people to get ovarian cancer or mesothelioma, because they've been kind of hit and miss. There have been victories for the plaintiffs. There's been victories for Johnson & Johnson also. It has swung both ways, and Johnson & Johnson is appealing all the cases. This is sort of more of a legal discussion, but there are some questions relating to how some of the cases were brought, and in particular in Missouri, where there was a really large verdict last summer, a $4.69 billion verdict against J&J. In these cases in Missouri, there, there's questions around, were all the plaintiffs in Missouri when this happened? Uh, there's kind of a debate over whether plaintiffs' lawyers are shopping for a particular kind of jurisdiction in which they maybe think that it's easier to bring these large multi-plaintiff cases. So, so that's, that's also been a, uh, an issue that Johnson & Johnson is trying to fight in appealing these cases, is essentially, were all the plaintiffs from Missouri, did this happen in Missouri, or are lawyers bringing in people from out of state because they think Missouri will be a good uh, venue for this type of case? Since all of this uh, has progressed, Johnson & Johnson has stopped specifically targeting minority women and overweight women, some of their latest presentations don't contain any uh, mentions of this stuff anymore. There has been less evidence of that in more recent years, and some documents that we saw from theirs broke down promotional and marketing budgets. It didn't have that same kind of focus. And as we've been discussing, the more recent years have been when really a lot of these lawsuits have started picking up. They, they really started picking up after about 2013. Um, there are a large number of 
plaintiffs after a particular victory in 2013 um, in a case in South Dakota. There have been a lot more of these ovarian cancer and mesothelioma cases brought. Baby powder has been sold since 1894, and it accounts for less than 1% of Johnson & Johnson's uh, $81.6 billion in revenue from last year, but it's critical to the company's family-friendly image, this baby powder. So now they have two versions of it, as you said before. It's uh, this talc version still and a cornstarch version. That's one of the really interesting things about all these cases is that when you're talking about verdicts close to $5 billion, talking about a product that doesn't generate nearly that much amount in uh, revenue in a given year, it really starts to go to the fact that this really is signature product. It's one of their oldest products for Johnson & Johnson. And so it, it kind of goes to the core of who this company is. And some other documents and presentations that we've seen from the company really, really point to that and really point to this idea of trust and that they're really kind of this whole baby products line they have with Johnson's shampoo and Johnson's baby lotion, baby oil. The company makes most of its money in pharmaceuticals and medical devices now. So the consumer product is much less and baby powder is far less, but this goes to the core of the company's image and particularly their relationship with the public. And so that's why obviously they've fought these cases vigorously in court. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the sheer number of plaintiffs, 13,000 now at this point, shows that challenge challenges that they're facing um, really continue to mount. Chris Kirkham, reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Next, we're going to take a look into the lucrative business of donating human eggs. Some agencies can pay as much as $50,000 per cycle in some cases, but donors say it can be confusing to navigate the process and leave some unaware of the risks. Oftentimes, the marketing just doesn't match the experience. We spoke to Paris Martineau, writer for Wired, for a look into this egg donation industry and start off by talking about the young women who are targeted mostly by this, college students. Just as you said, I spoke to a couple of different CEOs of egg donation agencies here in the U.S. And the one thing they repeated multiple times is that almost all of the women who end up participating in egg donation are college students or master's students trying to finance their education or someone trying to pay back some student loans, which, first of all, is a rather dystopian picture of this industry. But I guess to start from the basics, egg donation is designed to help families who are having trouble conceiving. It's take eggs from one woman fertilize the viable ones, and then transfer them to a recipient in the hopes of achieving pregnancy. But in practice, it's a lot more complicated than that, especially for the donors themselves, who are the ones that are going this procedure and are often, they say, being left in the dark about a lot of the different risks. Tell us how much money women can stand to make. Though it's technically called a donation in the U.S. when eggs change hands, money usually follows. A first-time egg donor will typically make about $8,000 in the low end for donating her eggs with that payment rising to 10000 for a second and even more the more donations you do. However, women who have certain in-demand traits like a high IQ or Ivy League education, model-esque features, particular sought-after ethnic backgrounds or skills, these women are routinely offered anywhere from $20,000 to $50,000. A number of the agency staff members that I spoke with specifically mentioned that women with Jewish, East Asian, or Indian heritage will often get paid even more than that because that's particularly in demand. It all sounds very good. You can help a family get a child of their own uh, for the donor 
you get a lot of money in it, especially if you have these desirable traits and you can make a deal on, on exactly what you're going to be paid. But the marketing doesn't always equal the experience. A lot of women go into it not really knowing some of the side effects or how their bodies are going to react to this. And you profiled a few women in this, but one of them specifically, her ovaries were painfully swollen. She experienced weight gain, abdominal pain, nausea, trouble urinating. And, and one girl in particular had to be hospitalized. Let's talk a little bit about some of these side effects that can happen. Donors say that the process is really confusing and frightening, and they feel often isolated, unaware of the risks, because none of the ads or marketing material generally mention these sort of risks. And egg donation as a medical process has been really under-researched. There are essentially no long-term studies about the effect that this process, which involves injecting yourself multiple times a day with hormone-filled syringes, and you have to do that for at least 10 days or more until a doctor pierces your vaginal wall with thick needles to suck out all the extra eggs. And that takes quite a toll on women's bodies. But the reality is that, especially in the US, where this is an extremely popular procedure, there isn't that much concise information out there for donors from the perspective of donors. Most of the information or groups you see out there are about parents, the sort of people who are paying for these sort of things, or people who are going through IVF. But donors have very little control in the process that is happening to them, and thus need more information if they're going to get into this. And I mean, what has ended up happening is in response, uh, a lot of donors have joined private Facebook groups to kind of share these nitty gritty details and console each other and give advice about how best to deal with this complicated experience. In the groups, the sort of things they talk about range from like how to deal with the pain of your ovaries swelling to the size of grapefruit, to how to take your bag full of injection hormone needles <laughs> on a plane without TSA freaking out. I thought that one was a funny part in the in the article. And bottom line is basically take a refrigerated lunchbox with all your stuff inside of it and make sure it's on your carry on. And if you need to inject while you're mid flight, you got to go into the plane bathroom. So. It's, yeah, and I hope mean, that your hands are steady. Right, exactly. As you said, there's just not really that much information for the donor perspective. So a lot of these women flock to these groups so that they can get that information. And the process is arduous at best. I mean, just for the screening alone, there's so much that goes into it. For some of the companies between the ages of 19 and 29, no criminal record, not be overweight, not be taking any type of drugs. You have to submit your SAT scores, genetic testing, psychological screening, which a lot of times they don't give you those results. There's so much that goes into the process of just being approved to begin with. Yeah, and that doesn't even mean that you're actually going to donate the eggs. You haven't even received any money for all of your time then. As we've been talking, egg donation is a big business, particularly in the United States, though. Then a lot of times there's overseas families and customers, let's say, <laughs> coming to the U.S. to get egg donors from here in the States. Why is that? Egg donation has taken off so much in the U.S. because there are little to no laws and regulations regarding the transfer of these unfertilized eggs for reproductive purposes. Around the world, egg donation is generally a highly regulated industry. It's completely barred in places like China and Germany, Italy, Norway, and paying women to donate your eggs is prohibited in most of Europe as well as in Canada and other nations. But the U.S. has essentially no federal regulations regarding the commercial dealings of eggs and only a few state laws. And most of those just refer to the rights of the intended parents or advertising materials, nothing protecting the donors or talking about their right to be informed or paid otherwise. Paris Martineau, writer for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. 
some interesting research from the Pew Research Center. As Twitter has become this big public square where anyone can share ideas, discuss, debate, even troll others, and we often see media reports point to activity there as representative examples of how the country feels on any given subject, Pew looked into how Twitter users actually compare to the U.S. population. My producer Miranda joins us to discuss some of these new findings, and the bottom line is Twitter is not America. Twitter users in the United States are statistically younger, wealthier, and more politically liberal than the general population. They're also substantially better educated. According to the Pew Research, 42% of the sampled users had a college degree versus 31% for U.S. adults broadly. 41% reported an income of more than $75,000, too. That's another large difference from just the country as a whole. And they were far more likely, and that's 60%, to be Democrats or lean Democratic than to be Republicans or lean Republican. Yeah, we hear a lot of stories about conservatives not really getting as much play on social media, mm -hmm. on Twitter specifically. The president had a meeting with the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, to talk about some of this stuff. And some of this research suggests maybe that's what it is. It's not that there's a purge of conservative voices or anything like that. It's these social media platforms become echo chambers. And if the majority of people there are Democrats or lean Democrats, that's what you're going to get out of that right there. Tell us how these top 10% of tweeters are using Twitter. How much are they posting? They tweet a median of 138 times a month and 81% use Twitter more than once a day. These people are most likely to be women. 65% versus 48%. And they were more likely to tweet about politics. Yeah, these heavy users tend to have about 400 followers and they tend to follow about 450 accounts. Compare that with the rest of Twitter, the bottom 90%, which only account for 20% of the tweets. They say that their median tweets per month, only two. And they <laughs> say that they, they have about 20 people who follow them and they follow about 75 people. So that suggests that the kind of casual user, people that aren't these top users, it's really just their small social circles, maybe. Well, that's why these findings reinforce the idea that, you know, social media isn't the most accurate barometer to take a pulse on society and what people are actually caring about. And that actually really gets lost because people online get angry and then it's the echo chamber and they want to hear what they already agree with. And that's why it sounds like some stories get way more play than they should. And you get confused about why that's the big story of the day. It's the place where stories go viral. It's right. the place where somebody can say something very incendiary, funny, post a funny video or something. And then the media will catch it. These top 10% of users will catch it and blow it up from there. They have more power in the bigger media sphere than the social media actually does. And earlier this week, there was a big meeting between the president and the Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey. It was to be a conversation about the health of the public conversation. Reports were that it lasted about 30 minutes and that the president spent a lot of time talking about why a lot of his Twitter followers had been purged. The president stated that he believes he lost some of his roughly, you know, 60 million followers in this anti-Trump, anti-conservative Twitter purge. But Jack Dorsey really was insistent to the president. And he explained that like other Twitter users, his account has a massive following of bots and fake accounts. And Twitter is doing their due diligence to delete all those. Right, exactly. Anybody who has a lot of followers tends to get them inflated. And then when Twitter gets around to actually identifying those and deleting those, the numbers go down. So that was uh, Jack Dorsey's job to let the president know uh, about that. So just be careful what you see on social media, as the uh, old saying says now. Thanks, Miranda. <laughs> Thanks, Oscar. All right. That's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.